It's the Inflation Reduction Act, but to me it looks a lot like the Clean Energy Act. It's the biggest investment in addressing climate change in the history of the country. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On this week's show, we ponder what our bodies, our planet, and the cosmos have in common. We can't look at climate change in isolation from everything else going on in the world. Inequality, misinformation, new destructive weapons, the modernization of our nuclear arsenals, societal fragility writ large. The only way that the scientific community can maintain or increase its credibility with the public is to be honest. Science tells us that there is an inner fragility in the entire universe. We share the same fragility. Perhaps we have passed some line that will be impossible to come back from, but that hasn't happened yet. Life, the universe, and everything after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So, we're in the dog days of summer, linked by ancient tradition to heat, drought, thunderstorms, lethargy, fever, mad dogs, bad luck, and death from all of the above. In the Northern Hemisphere, anyway. And it got us thinking about the fragility of life, the universe, and everything. We thought we'd probe the profound and tender frailty of our minds and our planet and the universe, too, for signs that human agency is meaningful. I think maybe we found some. Anyway, that's what this show is about, so let's start with the Earth. Senate Democrats rushing to pass their massive new spending bill. That bill focusing on reforming the tax code, reducing prescription drug prices, and combating climate change. It would also raise taxes on corporations and the wealthiest Americans. They're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act, but to me it looks a lot like the Clean Energy Act. There's a lot of money going into 10-year credits, into hydrogen, into nuclear, into wind, into solar. We will be able to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by over 40% by 2030. The package also greenlights several new drilling opportunities in the Gulf of Mexico. Maybe it wasn't built back better, but it's built back pretty good. But is pretty good good enough? According to the United Nations Development Program, numerous experts believe that we are living through or are on the cusp of a mass species extinction event, the sixth in the history of the planet and the first to be caused by a single organism, us. This week, a study by an international team of climate experts, published in the peer-reviewed Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, warns that legitimate worst-case scenarios are vastly underreported. They call for directing more research and attention on a, quote, climate endgame agenda. According to Luke Kemp, research associate at Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk and one of the study's authors, we know least about the scenarios that matter most. These are plausible. They could happen and we should pay attention to them, particularly because the consequences are so extreme. We often don't do analysis of higher temperature scenarios, and we also don't look at the worst case potential risks in terms of knock-on effects. Secondly, I think it's bad public communication. As soon as you put out a number, 1%, 2 0.0003%, 0.0003%, it gives people an undue sense of scientific precision. And what we're trying to say here is that these are plausible, but we need more research 
before we can venture out into the realm of putting numbers and probabilities upon these extreme scenarios. Are there ways that journalists can better share the information we have? One thing that many journalistic outlets can do is to simply accurately portray the science in the first place. I've been astounded by some of the bad takes of this research thus far. You know, I've seen at least one major outlet in the UK run the headline that climate change could result in an extinction-level pandemic by 2070. And we say nothing like that in the article. And indeed, it's worthwhile noting here that if I or any of my co-authors really felt that this was inevitable, that we were all doomed, we wouldn't have written this article. <laughs> I'd be on the beach somewhere. The entire point of this article in the climate endgame agenda is risk management. It's not disaster voyeurism. It's about understanding extreme risks so we can prevent them. Mm -hmm. And you do think there's a path to at least a degree of mitigation? Of course. You suggest that the current information that we get from institutions like uh, the UN's IPCC kind of sugarcoats our status. Is that true? I mean, didn't the IPCC famously conclude a few years back that much of the damage is irreversible and that we should focus on resilience in the face of warming instead? So we definitely don't say that the IPCC sugarcoats anything. Okay. The IPCC analyzes the existing body of literature on climate change. The existing climate scholarship that is analyzed by the IPCC is underexploring both higher temperature scenarios and underexploring these more complex risk assessments. In the case of higher end warming, when you look at the likelihood of three degrees and above relative to its mentions in different IPCC reports, there's a significant mismatch. 1.5 and 2 degrees are overrepresented vis-a-vis -vis their probability, while 3 degrees and above are underrepresented substantially. Uh -huh. In the second study, we showed that this seems to have gotten worse, most likely because we now have these international goals of limiting global warming to 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees under the Paris Climate Agreement. And so it's natural that that's channeled scientific attention towards those scenarios. And it's worth noting here, they're just easier scenarios to model. Mm -hmm. They also don't look at these risk cascades that we know do exist. You know, in 2010, a heat wave in Russia led to Russia imposing a cereal export ban. That led to a spike in global food prices, and we had exactly the same of COVID-19 as well. You know, if you were just worried about mortality and morbidity, you missed the biggest issue, which was that the sheer number of people infected could overwhelm and collapse the healthcare system. This is how risk actually works in the real world. You're talking about the knock-on effects, the pressures, the inequality, the hazards. All of those conditions that could lead to catastrophe are already present to a degree, and we need to be concerned about tipping points. Indeed. This is not just about the magnitude or the speed of warming. It's about societal fragility. And part of this is knock-on effects, what we call risk cascades. Climate change by itself may not cause a global catastrophe, but it could potentially impede our recovery from another catastrophe. So think of nuclear war, for instance. If mm -hmm. you have a nuclear winter, followed by what's called a nuclear spring, so essentially accelerated warming after 
the soot washes out of the atmosphere from a nuclear conflict. That's much, much worse if you have three or four degrees of warming rushing in than just 1.5. You also reviewed the collapse of some ancient civilizations due to climate change and other things. What can we learn from that? Collapse historically hasn't always been a bad thing. Historically, it's almost always been bad for elites. Hmm. It hasn't always been bad for the vast majority of the population. That's fascinating. I think one of the best collapse or transformation case studies is covered by my colleague Eric Klein, which is the late Bronze Age collapse. It can be dated to roughly 1177 BCE. You had this collection of different states, the Akkadian Empire, for instance, the Assyrians, and many others, like the Mycenae Kingdom. They all exist in this one big system across the Mediterranean, deeply both economically and diplomatically integrated. It's a good parallel for globalization, but on a much smaller scale. There wasn't just one big risk. We did have climatic variation. One of the big impacts appears to have been drought. We also had climate change causing migration from the north into the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. It had these long-term trends like increases in equality, increases in the interconnectedness of the network, which made it likely that if one city-state fell, that could cascade throughout the entire system. It was vulnerable. Do you think that we're similarly vulnerable? Yes. <laughs> and there's good studies on this that have actually been conducted by some of my co-authors, Martin Sheffer in particular, how these very large interconnected systems, whether they're in the financial space or the ecological, they're often very good at buffering against small disturbances, small shocks. But once the shock becomes sufficiently large enough, they amplify rather than dampen it. This hour is focused on existential questions. But we're also exploring the possibility of agency. I think it's fair to say that the phrase climate endgame can be a little off-putting. <laughs> what is alarming has the potential to be paralyzing. I disagree this is off-putting. There is an enormous difference between talking about risks, potential adverse events in the future, and saying that they could happen, and saying they are inevitable. One thing to note here is that Endgame comes from chess or mm -hmm. bridge. It's the stage of the game when you have few pieces remaining. It's not saying checkmate, you're done. It's saying the final moves can be played out. I think that actually, in a very subtle way, does suggest agency. It does suggest that, yeah, we can think about the extreme risks and these worst case scenarios, these catastrophic risks, but we have agency in preventing them, even potentially at the late stages. What a perfect way to end this interview. No worries, my absolute pleasure. Dr. Luke Kemp is one of the authors of a new study called Climate Endgame, Exploring Catastrophic Climate Change Scenarios. Among the reasons we balk at considering the potential for long-term catastrophe is that our brains are wired for short-term problem-solving. That's according to journalist Brian Walsh, the editor of Vox's Future Perfect, who dug into the issue in a Time magazine piece on, quote, why your brain can't process climate change. Welcome to the show, Brian. It's great to be here. You wrote about how we're wired to avoid thinking about doomsday scenarios, existential events that are maybe a little too far over the horizon. 
And you situate us into the narrow metal tube of a functional MRI. Indeed. If you actually put yourself in that machine and you ask yourself to think about people close to you, your brain will light up. If you ask yourself to think about people very far away from you, your brain will light up less. Basically, the closer in proximity or relationship someone is, the more your brain is active, you're thinking about it. But what's really interesting is if you actually ask yourself to think about you in the immediate future, okay, lights up, like I identify with myself, I'm thinking about that person probably too much all the time. <laughs> but then if you ask yourself to think about you in 10 years' time, it lights up a little bit less. 20, 30, it lights up increasingly less. And what that means essentially is that we almost treat our future selves as strangers to ourselves. And that's yourself. Imagine trying to think about or prepare for generations of people who haven't even been born yet. Think about... Something as simple as this. I mean, do you save enough for retirement? Are you financially secure for the future? Surveys would indicate that's not the case. You know, you often make choices based off your sort of present day needs. Multiply that by society and you've got, you've got where we are now. <laughs> and maybe inevitably, economists have their own term to describe this phenomenon, right? The social discount rate, which quantifies how much value declines as we look into the future, kind of the opposite of the compounding interest rate. I think that is the way to think about it. It's, you know, would you rather have $1 now or $10 in a year's time? Basically, how you answer that question is sort of how you set your own personal discount rate. Right. You put that in explicit monetary terms. You mm -hmm. calculated that with a 5% discount rate, it would only be worth spending about $2,200 today in order to prevent $87 trillion of damages, that's the size of the total world economy now, in 500 years. Now, this presents some problems. I don't know anybody who actually believes we're going to be around in 500 years. I think you're absolutely right. It's really hard to wrap your mind around time links as long as 500 years. I like to start thinking about my five-year-old son, like I think about the fact that he could well be around by the start of the 22nd century, which is mind-blowing to me. Then maybe you think that actually, yes, we do have a responsibility to what we owe that future. Like we do have a responsibility to try to create the best possible conditions for them, not just to survive, but to thrive. Those people don't have a voice. We have to be that voice, not just thinking about the future, but maybe even being prepared to make some sacrifices of our own welfare now to ensure that future is actually even better. Yeah, right. That is a little bit like, but other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? Yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely. It's a big ask. And it's so interesting when you look at you know what's happened over the last couple of weeks with climate politics. We went essentially from one week, Joe Manson was not going to support any kind of climate action. It was dead. Suddenly, a few days later, things change. Okay, he's on board now. But it's so interesting to me the way this was shifted in terms of how it was framed. This went from a climate act to something that's now called the Inflation Reduction Act. That shifts you from future think to current think. Exactly. Having reported on climate change now for more than 15 years and covering the cap-and-trade failure back in 2010 under President Obama. Back then, those were really ideas that were based around limiting things. It was like, we are going to cut carbon by a certain amount. It will cost more. It will create a better economy and so forth and so on. But really, it was leading with those ideas of sacrifice reduction. Now, we've switched around being like, this is a bill that will help you with inflation. This is a bill that will expand the supply of clean energy, will make electric vehicles cheaper. And cleaner air. And cleaner air, yeah. And that's interesting because, like, Cleaner air is, is one of those examples of an environmental problem where you actually get the effects immediately. You know, you don't get that with climate change. 
it's a problem where even if you're doing positive things, even if you're reducing emissions in the present day, that won't really change warming next year, five years from now, 10 years from now. Right. You won't really start to feel it until later on. So you don't get that feedback. And so you need to think about other ways to sell this to the public. If this is the way to sell it successfully, I mean, this is probably the best we can do. You talked about how the people of the future have no voice. You tend toward a writer of philosophy named Samuel Scheffler, and I haven't read his book, Death and the Afterlife, but the descriptions make it sound as though he thinks we as a species actually do care about the future, even if our behavior suggests we don't. He goes into thinking really about, well, what really matters to us in the present day? Like I just went on and said, like, well, we tend to focus on our present selves, you know, adopt habits that may not be better for us in our future selves. But we also do care deeply about the continuation of the human project, continuation, obviously, of our families. You know, I think if tomorrow we were all to find out that, okay, you have a situation like that great novel and movie, Children of Men, where suddenly mm -hmm. no one can reproduce anymore. You'd think on one hand, well, your life is not really changing. You know, it's not as if an asteroid or nuclear war hit and suddenly everyone dies at once. But what that book and film shows, and I think what Sam talks about really, is that without confidence in a future that will go beyond us, life starts to lose meaning really. But you wrote, the problem is, in the words of the social philosopher Roman Krisnarik, we colonize the future, treating it as a distant colonial outpost where we dump ecological degradation, nuclear waste, public debt, and technological risk. This hour is about connectedness, frailty, and agency. And the first part, I think we can get. We are connected to the world. But how do we exercise that agency? How do we exercise that agency? To make a better future or a sustainable one or any future at all. I think every action around climate change is an effort to do just that. People take different routes to it. You can be an activist with the idea that you are trying to safeguard the future. You can be a politician who's trying their best to be pragmatic, appeal maybe a little bit to those present-day biases to get legislation passed that will benefit the future. I think any spiritual movement really often relates to that. Having a family, that relates to that. All these things, to me, work together. It does take an imaginative leap. I think it's trying to look to the whole sweep of humanity and look at the progress that we have experienced over the course of 500 years in the past, a thousand years, even further. As difficult as things might look in the immediate future, I wouldn't want to go back 500 years. We've, we've come a long <laughs> way since then. Perhaps we have passed some line that will be impossible to come back from, but that hasn't happened yet. And I have a lot of confidence. And as a journalist, I try to write about that as much as possible that we can continue that, even with all the setbacks we're likely to face in the future. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you. Brian Walsh is the editor of Vox's Future Perfect and the author of the book End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World. Coming up, the excruciating frailty of the self and why we struggle to change direction on Alzheimer's research. This is On the Media. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. 
I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So let's move from our convulsing planet to our convoluted brains, roughly three pounds of mostly fat with water, proteins, carbs, and salt. The seat of ourselves, no one like any other, each defined by memory. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that memory was the matrix in which all other faculties are embedded, and that without it, all life and thought were just in unrelated succession. That was, of course, before dementia stole Emerson's self away. Millions of Americans live with Alzheimer's, a disease that robs patients of their memories and ultimately erases selfhood even as they live and breathe, a disease that still defies science after decades of dogged research. But in 2016, a full century after the disease was first described, scientists made what was hailed as a groundbreaking advancement. Beta amyloids are typically found in the brain and have been known to be linked to Alzheimer's. Abnormally configured proteins that are long and sticky. The brain lights up with amyloid plaque, suggesting a high likelihood of Alzheimer's disease. Since then, the paper has been cited over 2,000 times in other studies. It sparked a massive revival of research into the amyloid beta protein, kindling long-deferred hopes of a cure. Lisa is taking an experimental new drug, one that blocks amyloid formation. It's one of 50 drugs being tested in over 100 clinical trials nationwide. Late last month, a whistleblower pointed out potential flaws in that groundbreaking 2006 paper. It all started when two prominent neuroscientists believed that some of the evidence related to an experimental Alzheimer's drug called Simuflem by the biotech firm Cassava Sciences may have been, quote, fraudulent. The neuroscientists, by the way, were also short sellers betting against cassava and who, through their own attorney, retained the services of an expert in the field. That expert was Michael Schrag, a board-certified vascular neurologist and assistant professor of neurology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who was paid $18,000 to investigate Simuflam. He compiled a dossier of his findings, which included apparently dubious images related to the drug from dozens of journal articles. A petition was filed with the FDA to stop production of the drug. The FDA rejected the petition. Schrag also submitted his findings to the National Institutes of Health, which had invested tens of millions of dollars in the research. Cassava Sciences denies any misconduct. After completing his work on cassava, Schrag then turned his attention to the 2006 paper. Well, just to be clear, Schrag does not state that his work is definitive. He does not say that fraud occurred, nor do I. What he does is he points to red flags. Charles Piller writes investigative stories for science. His latest is Blots on a Field, which he wrote after a six-month investigation, which he says offers strong support for Schrag's suspicions. He points to image after image and paper after paper where there are apparent signs of image manipulation. And it's sometimes unclear why, but what sometimes occurs is that people who conduct these complicated experiments are believing that their hypothesis is correct 
they should see certain results in the images. And if they're not getting those results, a motive might be to change the images so that they reflect the hypothesis. That doesn't sound very scientific. (laughs) No. Fortunately, this kind of manipulation is not common in science, but it clearly occurs. And there's case after case of it that has been identified in other circumstances. Now, Schreg created this 100-page dossier involving 34 different papers, either by Cassava Sciences people or by scientists who were related to the company in various ways. Mm -hmm. And he presented to NIH because he said, look, this is potentially important. It's a potentially compelling argument that scientific misconduct might have occurred. And it's your responsibility to look at this more carefully. And indeed, certain investigations are underway, including one at the City University of New York, where one of the main players in the cassava story is based. Let's talk about the images now. I love what they're called, Western blots. (laughs) Apparently, it's a way of displaying different proteins in a sample. Basically, you get a sample, you kind of grind it up, you put it through a device that pushes proteins through a gel using an electrical current, right? Brooke, that is an excellent and correct description. I think that's because you told that to our producer. Anyway, so (laughs) take it from there. How... Is this stuff manipulated? Western blots, they look kind of like stacked blobs, stacked bands, you might call it. And the different bands within a blot represent different kinds of proteins. So it's very important to the experiment that the correct information is in these blots because it can make or break a hypothesis about what is associated with something like Alzheimer's disease. So... The way in which they can be manipulated is through digital tools. Now, there's, of course, the old trusty Photoshop, and there's also other digital tools that are actually distributed by the National Institutes of Health that are similar, more oriented towards scientific purposes. These tools can be used to pretty up an image. It's pretty accepted in the scientific community that they usually use partial images. They cut out elements and they show these as evidence of a certain finding. And it's perfectly permissible to do that. The journals only have so much real estate in their pages. And if you showed the entire image for every experimental finding, you might fill up a whole paper with them. Mm -hmm. So that's acceptable. What is not acceptable and what is considered possible misconduct is altering what's actually in the image or greatly enhancing or changing the contrast in a way that you can't really see what's going on clearly, and then representing the image in a way scientifically that the experiment actually doesn't support. So Matthew Schrag didn't explicitly say that any image in the data was doctored, but he did raise a lot of red flags. So how did that work lead him back to that 2006 landmark paper in Nature? There's a really interesting online forum for scientists called PubPeer. And this website is a place where scientists, when they see things in studies that look funny to them, either images that don't look right or data that doesn't look right, they post a comment up on PubPeer and essentially ask the authors of the study, am I misinterpreting this? Is there something here that you want to share that can elucidate why this doesn't look right? Is there more to the story? And The reason that Schrag was looking on PubPeer is that he was constantly trying to refine his how to look at these images, how to understand them. 
So he did a search for Alzheimer's on this site, PubPeer. Then he noticed that there were two or three studies popping up by a guy at the University of Minnesota by the name of Sylvan Lesney. So he took a look at them and he saw what was being claimed as alleged manipulations of Western blot images. He then looked at the original papers themselves and saw other images that also looked to him very suspect. And using his digital tools, he seemed to be able to show support for the idea that they were also manipulated. And then he did a broader search of papers by Lesney, and he ran across this 2006 Nature paper that he immediately realized was extremely important because it had been cited by thousands of other studies. And lo and behold, image after image after image showed serious signs of image doctoring. I gotta ask, how is it in the 16 years since that paper, that landmark paper appeared in Nature, no one else suspected that something might be wrong? Yeah, it's, it's a puzzle. There's an enormous amount of complacency in this realm. There's an enormous amount of lack of due diligence by journals to seriously check images for possible fakery. I think journals are doing more today, way more, than they did in 2006. But still, the tools to do this were available back in 2006. And it's not you know, rocket science. It is something that people can learn to do, even if they don't have expertise in the field of study. So the journals haven't done a good job. What about the fellow scientists? And that's the part that is the most troubling to me. Lesney's close colleague in the 2006 paper is a scientist by the name of Karen Ash, who's an eminent, highly regarded expert in Alzheimer's disease and has made major contributions to the field. She was the senior author in the 2006 paper. And in essence, she had to certify that the results were correct and that she had reviewed the data carefully. It's pretty obvious that she didn't put it through enough of a rigorous review she now believes that there's a high amount of likelihood or credibility that Lesney may have manipulated those images. She said so in the press a number of times since my articles appeared. She says it's lamentable that it might have happened that way, but still, strangely, doesn't take any responsibility and doesn't believe that it had any impact on the findings of the paper, which I think to people who have evaluated the paper considered to be pretty bizarre because we're talking about six or seven images in that paper alone that strike at the heart of their hypothesis. You quoted a neuroscientist at Stanford University, his Nobel laureate, Thomas Sudhoff, who's an Alzheimer's expert, and he said... The immediate obvious damage is wasted NIH funding and wasted thinking in the field because people are using these results as a starting point for their own experiments. I think the question is opportunity costs. So really what happened with this paper is that at a moment when skepticism was rising about the ideas associated with the amyloid hypothesis, this paper gave people hope and belief that they mm -hmm. were on the right track. And this paper supercharged NIH funding and corporate funding for drug development. What's so troubling is that other hypotheses, other possible causes of Alzheimer's have been starved for funding during the same period. And the dominance of the amyloid hypothesis has been such that money continues to flow to it, despite the decades of failure to turn it into therapeutic remedies for Alzheimer's disease. I just wonder, where does this leave 
Alzheimer's research, this terrifying annihilation of the self. We've been led down so many rosy paths, only to see nothing much at the end except failure and disappointment. What should the average listener take from it? I think it's important to understand that this set of problems was outed by an Alzheimer's scientist. There is an element of self-correction in the field. A lot of people in the field feel a deep responsibility to do the kind of due diligence that Matthew Schrag did. So that's message number one. The second is that this is a human endeavor. There are mistakes made, and there's even corruption at times in any endeavor, including science. But the vast majority of the work that's being done is faithful to scientific integrity. It's these exceptions, these apparently big examples of possible misconduct that give the field an opportunity to look into the mirror. Why did they allow this to happen? What systems can be put into place to prevent this sort of breakdown from happening in the future? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the field who have staked their careers on the importance of following through on the amyloid hypothesis, who have been discounting the significance of this problem. In essence, saying, well, it's lamentable that someone might have altered images and experiments, but it really doesn't matter. Everything is fine. And I, I think that rings hollow with the public and generates the sort of backlash from people who feel they have reason to be skeptical of the scientific community and the public health community, for that matter. Charles, you did an important thing with that Science Magazine piece. It was long. It was deep. It was fair. Do you ever feel any ambivalence about it? I mean, about your work as a necessary and essential buzzkill. Brooke, I think about that all the time. I really feel concerned that when I put out a story like this and it's picked up by the likes of Tucker Carlson and some of the other right-wing media, it's used as an opportunity to say, okay, if this one set of studies was falsified, that means all the research is completely fake. The scientific enterprise can't be trusted. And even though I abhor that, I don't really feel I have any other alternative but to do the work that I do. I mean, let's face it, the only way that the scientific community can maintain or increase its credibility with the public is to be honest when mistakes are made or when corruption is found. As you've said, you can't do good work if you're standing on the shoulders of corrupt evidence. Research, when it's most effective, is replacing outdated assumptions, and it's replacing them with new mysteries. It leads to all manner of breakthroughs. And that's why uncovering problems in the field, correcting them, is essential to the process. Charles, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. Charles Piller is an investigative reporter for science and author of the recent report, Blots on a Field? A neuroscience image sleuth finds signs of fabrication in scores of Alzheimer's articles, threatening a reigning theory of the disease. Coming up, what our bodies, our planet, and our cosmos have in common. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. A few weeks ago, we got the best news we've had in, well, 
eons. Today, science has made the distance between all of us and the cosmos just a little bit shorter with perhaps one of the greatest scientific achievements in our lifetime. The new era in astronomy, NASA releasing a full batch of images and data from the massive James Webb Space Telescope. The photos are breathtaking. But the biggest achievement is bound up in the data that it's providing of the universe as it looked soon after the Big Bang, more than 13 billion years ago. The Webb Telescope is giving us baby pictures of the cosmos. Guido Tonelli is a particle physicist at CERN and the author of the book Genesis, the story of how everything began. He's long probed with mind-blowing success the origins of everything and seems to also have a grasp on how it all ends. But first, he wants us to understand how vital origin stories are, no matter where or when they come from. I think it's a primordial issue. If you take a look to all tribes, all small populations that sometimes have been found in the Borneo or in the Amazonas, they all have a tale of the origin. It looks like we need desperately to locate ourselves inside a tale. And once we have located ourselves inside a tale, then we can start organizing our societies. It serves, you believe, as the origin of art, science, philosophy, religion? Because you locate yourself in a long tradition, and the group that owns a tale of the origin is a group which has culture, which is stronger. And you touch on a multitude of creation stories. Prominently, Hesiod's Theogony, the best existing notion of what we think the Greeks in the 7th century BC might have thought about these matters. And he begins with a deity called chaos, a word that had a very different meaning then. Hesiod's chaos was not chaotic. She was a void. And that's kind of how your universe begins, right? For me, as a modern scientist, that believes that the entire universe is a transformation of the void. The void resonates with the old Greek word of chaos. So it's like closing a circle that was opened by Hesiod and close today by modern science. In your world, collecting information on the birth of space-time, how did you feel about the images coming from the James Webb Telescope? It's uh, something difficult to describe because we know what is happening in the darkest side of our universe because we have indirect evidence. But the power of an image is incredibly strong. It's amazing to see galaxies in collisions or to discover that even in the smallest and darkest portion of our universe, you can collect signs of hundreds, thousands of galaxies, each one containing hundreds of thousands of stars around which we know that we'll be orbiting an immense number of planets. We are really a very tiny object in an incredibly large structure, which is absolutely fantastic. Do you think that they'll enable you to attack some of the mysteries that we still have, like dark energy, dark matter? You've said that it's embarrassing for scientists to know only 4 or 5 percent of matter. Yeah. I'm a bit embarrassed in admitting that our ignorance is still immense. In particular, there are two major questions. One is the 
dark matter, which is very important because it keeps together everything, in particular the galaxies. Dark matter is everywhere, including in this room, and we are not able to explain what it is. And dark matter counts for something like 27, 28% of the entire universe. Even worse is dark energy. Two-thirds of the universe is made out of this strange form of energy which makes everything expand at an increasing speed. The real hope that we have today is that the James Webb Telescope will give some light in some of these mysteries. Do you think it's possible we'll ever get a glimpse of the Big Bang? Aha, this is a very good question. We cannot go to the Big Bang because there is a limit, and the limit is a sort of a wall. And the wall is the moment in which radiation, which is light, most of the, the telescopes use a sort of light of some frequency, light separated from matter only 380,000 years after the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. So we have reached already this point and we can see the baby universe. Unfortunately, we cannot go beyond this with electromagnetic radiation. But today we have understood how to use gravitational waves. So if we are able to improve the sensitivity of the gravitational wave detectors, then we might be able to really see live the very first instant of the birth of our universe. Wow. You direct your vision to the astoundingly large and to the unimaginably small, the infinitesimal particles that make up everything. Do these two kinds of data work together to piece together our origin story? So science uses basically two independent teams of pioneers, the teams of astrophysicists or astronomers looking at objects which are very far away, they see them back in time. We, the other team, the particle physicists, study the tiniest possible object, the elementary particle. We bring back to life particles that were extinct since billions of years. Our universe at the very beginning was extremely dense and extremely hot, very different from the, the large and cold and dark universe we have today. In the expansion, the universe has become cooler and cooler. That means that these particles are not able anymore to live. The temperature is too low. Mm -hmm. But in the particle accelerator, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, for example, producing collisions between protons, as we do, the density of energy reaches a value which is similar to the value of the original universe. This is why in this tiny mm -hmm. portion, going high in energy, in temperature, means going back in time. Ten years ago this month, after decades of building intricate instruments to probe the cosmic mysteries, you had an astounding breakthrough at the Large Hadron Collider near Geneva. You and your colleagues announced the discovery of the almost mythical Higgs boson, known popularly as the God particle, <laughs> because of its role in giving mass to all the other particles, basically creating everything. This hunt for this elusive particle occupied the lifetime of a generation of scientists. The previous generation, without success, they were not able to discover it. Now we know why, because it is a particle which is extremely heavy. And the machines that were produced in the 60s or 70s, they were not able to produce it. For a scientist like me, being aware that you are 
among the first humans to look at a new state of matter that was not available since the beginning of the universe, since billions of years, is something which is difficult to describe. Is there any way to briefly explain the significance of the Higgs boson and how it contributes to our creation story? Imagine that for a moment we can fly there and see the baby universe. A sort of a fog of elementary particles, each one indistinguishable from the others. This universe could have expanded forever without forming nothing interesting. Mm -hmm. Would have been a perfect universe, but completely useless. Without the possibility to create stars, galaxies, flowers, human beings, rocks, etc. And this is why it's so important, because after one hundred of a billionth of a second, is really a tiny moment just after the Big Bang, is the moment in which the universe cools down enough to allow the Higgs boson, Higgs boson, that was one of these particles flying around without any particular role, started freezing because the universe became too cold. Now the universe is not anymore perfect. Now each particle has a different mass. Now there is not the same density everywhere. There is differentiation. It is thanks to a few of these particles that we can form the first protons. And around the proton, you can have a lepton, which is an electron, flying around. So you can have the first atom. You can form the first clouds of dust, of hydrogen, that will give birth to the first stars, that will give birth to the first planets. Without this initial touch, our universe would have remained forever a perfect but useless universe. There are creation stories. What about extinction stories? What are the best theories about the end? Many have postulated a big crunch, basically an expanding universe changing direction, smashing into itself. The big crunch uh, is basically been abandoned because the evidence we have is that uh, our universe, it is continuing its expansion at an increasing speed. One possibility for the, the fate of our universe will be uh, that this expansion will continue forever. That means that after tens of billions of years, the universe will be too cold, everything will be too distant, and there will be no creation of new stars. It will become a very depressive universe, full of black holes, uh, neutron stars, it is called the thermal death of the universe. Mm -hmm. There is another possibility that is quite recent, is in connection with the discovery of the, of the Higgs boson. Because the Higgs boson that is producing this mechanism, allowing particles to have mass and to aggregate in, in stable forms. So if the Higgs boson go to another transformation and disappears immediately, we have collected data that hints that this could be possible, that uh, tomorrow at four o'clock in the morning, immediately in the entire universe, the X field degrades. No? And if this happens, the entire universe will become a huge bubble of uh, pure energy. So everything will disintegrate. There will be no possibility of having stars or galaxies or planets or human beings, etc. We come back to the original situation, the perfect sphere, 
of uh, elementary particles, all massless, uh, that are not able to aggregate in any form. It will be a hotter universe with nothing to be described. You talked at the beginning of how important it is to the development of culture and art and the strength of societies to understand their origins, to have some story about it. I just wonder if you think contemplating our end has value in itself. We thought it was uh, impossible to damage significantly the planet. Now we have realized that these mechanisms are quite uh, finely tuned, and if you intervene too strongly, you might destroy equilibria which are there since millions of years. No? Now we know that the same is true for the entire universe. Imagine for a moment, we've been in the last 2,500 years speculating that we are subject to death while the moon, the sun, the planet Earth was eternal. Now science tells us that there is an inner fragility in the entire universe. Mm. And so we, as material beings, share the same fragility. For us, it's 80, 90, 120 years. For the universe, it's billions of years. But for me, it's absolutely amazing to discover that modern science tells us today that the fragility of the human beings is shared by the immense structure of our beautiful universe. <laughs> Thank you very much. Guido Tonelli is a particle physicist and the author of the 2021 book, Genesis, the story of how everything began. Okay, so we don't have much agency when it comes to the thermal death of the universe. But Guido's point about connection was one made in some fashion by all our guests this week, and that reminded me of a conversation I once had with Michael Pollan, who wrote How to Change Your Mind. He told me he was drawn to the subject of psychedelics, in part because of some work that was being done in hospitals with terminal patients, people who were terribly afraid of what was coming. They were offered psilocybin, which suppresses the part of the brain that governs separateness from our surroundings. It gave them direct experience of a connection to everything that most of us can't achieve on our own. It opened them up to the idea that all separate things come to an end, including their pain and themselves, even as all things come together. And they were less afraid. I'm not advocating drug use here. I wish there were a pill. All we've got is a little free will. Making the decision not to despair. And that's the show. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Savannah Collins. Thanks for all your help, Savannah. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.